everyone, and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry, as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor at SlashFilm.com and the host of the Slash Filmcast. And joining me today, he is the man who played Littlefield in the Emmy-nominated TV film, The Valley of Light, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. It was nominated for an Emmy. Yes, uh, nominated for a uh, primetime Emmy, I believe, for yeah, that... outstanding cinematography for a miniseries or movie. Excellent. That That is really excellent. That is the only project I've ever been on in which they used force majeure. Do you know what that is, David? Uh, it's like an act of God or something? Or act like... of God. Very good. In a contract, when people may not know this, when you do a movie or television show, there's a little-known contract, and they're called force majeure, which is act of God, which means if you are involved – you know, I realize this would be good for some of my atheists in the audience who are also lawyers. If you are involved with a production in which it is determined an act of God has taken place and you cannot continue shooting, you get money from the insurance company. And we were involved. We were shooting in Portland, Portland, Oregon, and we were hit with an act of God, which was a flood the likes of which maybe Noah saw. (laughs) It was rain for like. 10 straight days to where we could not shoot the movie. And so the producers uh, enforced the force majeure, the act of God, and we moved the entire production to Sacramento just in time for that rainstorm (laughs) to hit Sacramento where it rained for another 10 days. So that, that's a good thing to know when you look at that contract. Well, was, I'm, I'm, a great I'm glad that the movie was finished in spite of those things. Yes, absolutely. You know, Stephen, speaking of being able to finish things, we were going to record <laughs> this podcast early this morning. I said, give me a call. And usually you call me at around 6 a.m. your time, 9 a.m. my time. I'm recording this in Boston. And this morning, you didn't call me until about 11 a.m. your time, which is quite late for you. That was quite late for me. Actually, it was quite early for me, David. Last night, I was finishing uh, my ninth show and my final show on Californication, and we finished at 3.15 in the morning, and I got home a little after 3.30. (laughs) By the time I took my Benadryl to get my hives to go away and take a shower to get rid of my makeup, it was close to 4. So I slept in a little bit today. I slept in to about 9, but... It was it was fascinating because uh you know this does have to do a little bit with the podcast today because last night one of the things that was taking a long time is we were doing an enormous comedic dinner fight scene and during the fight scene people vomit and of course that's very funny but I hilarious I, oh, hilarious but I thought it brought up the age old question if if you could tape record it, it would be absolutely hilarious. These serious discussions, people having of what type of vomit was funnier. Is it funnier to have projectile vomiting? Do we want chunks or do we want spray? Or, or, or maybe more of a dry heave. <laughs> more of a dry heave. That was actually one of the lines used by the actor in, in the scene saying, would it be funnier if I did a dry heave? And I only bring this up to say that... Uh, I was pondering it. I was pondering the question myself, to dry heave or not to dry heave. Because for better or for worse, my career has primarily been occupied with playing comedy. 
a fair number of my emails, and you know this, David, because you read them apparently, have to do with questions of comedy. Here in Los Angeles, I've been asked to teach a comedy class. On television and in movies, people cast me and say, hey, can you make this funny? And when I was asked to be a guest on the David Letterman show, I was warned by the producer that under no circumstances was I to do anything funny. So, (laughs) you would think from all of this evidence that I would have my finger on the pulse of what comedy is. But I don't. So... Thank you very much for listening to the Tobolowsky Files. You can reach me at S-T-E-P-H-E-N-T, as in Tom O-B. No, I'm not going to do that. All right, later. You see, you got, oh, wait, what? (laughs) You see, David, comedy is very tricky. In fact, it's like most of the videos of tornadoes on the Weather Channel. You rarely see the storm itself, just what's left of the barn afterwards. With comedy, we laugh or we don't. And we're often left looking back over our shoulder saying, sorry, was, was that a joke? I think I missed something. In nature, comedy often takes us by surprise in the least appropriate settings. In fact, America's Funniest Home Videos has relied on this for years. But for a moment, let's pretend we're anthropologists examining comedy as it can appear in the wild. Here's an example. I was in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I was shooting the movie Wild Hogs, which was a comedy. But in this case, the cameras weren't rolling and I wasn't working. I was alone. It was dinner time and I was hungry. The hotel featured a live Indian flute player in the dining room. This was going to be too much for me. Solo Indian flute music amplified through an echo chamber is tolerable in small doses as long as you can escape. I know for the devotees of this type of music, there's something haunting about it, but it reminds me of having my teeth cleaned on peyote. So, I walked a mile down the road to a very pleasant Mexican restaurant called The Three Rivers. The Three Rivers had everything you needed for a positive Mexican eating experience. They had a mariachi band. They had beer. And most importantly, They had free chips. Free chips is one of the great inventions Mexico has given to the world. There's almost nothing as satisfying as the illusion of something for nothing. It's hard to eat alone, but it's business as usual when you spend a lot of time on the road. So I brought a book. I ordered the Tex-Mex number three. It was great. It had everything. I ordered a beer and started dipping chips, and I felt like I was ready for the evening. But I wasn't. The band was in the middle of a lively version of Rancho Grande when a shriek came out from a table about 20 feet away from me. There was a group of about 10 older women, all with name tags and turquoise jewelry, obviously on some kind of tour. And one of the women was face down on the table. And the others were standing around her screaming. One was yelling, oh my God, she's dead. I think she's dead. The restaurant stopped. The band stopped. The waiter stopped. I stopped. The manager rushed over to the woman who was face down on the table. He looked at her with no apparent knowledge of medicine, put his fingers on her neck like they do in law and order, and pronounced to the ladies that he would call the fire department, do not touch her. He ran back to his office. People in the restaurant looked at one another, having no idea what the proper etiquette was in this situation. I mean, do you wait? Do you eat? Do you leave? The band members looked at one another shrugged, and started playing Rancho Grande again. People started eating again. 
Three diners came to the aid of the women and volunteered to perform CPR, and while they were trying to explain to the ladies what needed to be done, the stricken woman slowly started sliding out of her chair onto the floor. One of the women yelled, She's falling! Another woman yelled, Don't touch her! The ladies shrieked. The music stopped, the waiter stopped, the eating stopped again. The woman fell onto the floor. Pause. Then the mariachi band started up again, and the people returned to eating. The three volunteers started CPR. And now, I was faced with the very real decision of should I eat in a restaurant with a woman on the ground, or should I get my food and go back to the hotel and risk the Indian flute music? If I got my food to go, I would have to carry it back a mile or so, and it would be cold. I felt like I was in a no-win situation. The waiter came with another beer, and I asked if they had those to-go containers. He said they did, but my meal wasn't really ready to go yet because, as he said, the dead woman has slowed things down in the kitchen. I said, never mind. Take your time. I'll just eat it here. And I did. The fire department arrived as I finished. The stricken woman was breathing, being put on a gurney, and was rushed to the local hospital. As awful as that evening was, it was funny. Now, as scientists, is it possible to examine this specimen of comedy in the wild to identify some of the essential elements? One, there was jeopardy. Two, there was surprise. And the mariachi band added an odd element of gaiety. Now, here's one people don't usually note. There was civilization. The restaurant, the music, the proper behavior, all are necessary for this story to be funny. The conflict at the center of it all was the perfect storm of man versus nature. And what made it funny was man's insistence that dinner would win out in the end. But as we all know, no matter how good the music is, it doesn't. In a sneaky way, the story also shows man rising up against the forces of death, even if it is only to have guacamole. Most of us experience this kind of comedy every day, traffic lights and grocery stores, but the professional comedian has to recreate it on command over and over again. This kind of discipline requires a plan. Now, if a comic comes up with a plan, it's called a bit. If a professor comes up with a plan, it's called a theory. And here's a good one. In 1905, Sigmund Freud delivered a series of lectures on comedy that became the book called Jokes and Their Relation to the Unconscious. Yes, Freud wrote a book on comedy, and it's brilliant. He said the essence of comedy was making the meaningless meaningful, and conversely, making the meaningful meaningless. And you certainly had that that evening in Santa Fe several times over. The normalcy of dinner was made meaningless by the woman's predicament, and the woman's predicament was made meaningless by the mariachi band. Despite Freud's enthusiasm for theory, I think comedy rests more in the realm of art than science. It depends more on the poetry of events than a formula. So, here is a moment that stands out in my memory as a sort of haiku on the nature of comedy. I was a young actor working at Theater 3 in Dallas. This was around the same period of time I was doing Godspell in 1974, 
right before Beth and I left for the University of Illinois. And for maximum enjoyment, you can reference episode 15, The Politics of Romance. I was in a modern version of Electra, written by the wonderful French playwright Jean Giraudoux. The main character of the play was an elderly man, a sort of homespun philosopher known only as the beggar. Through the course of this entire three-and-one-half-hour play, the beggar has many, many long esoteric speeches, so delightful, so long, that it was not unusual for several members of the audience to fall into a deep sleep, the kind of sleep that leads to dreams and snoring. Theater 3 is also an arena stage, which means the audience wraps around the entire playing area, making it quite possible that on any given night during Act 3, the snores can come at you from 360 degrees. And if you use your imagination just a little, an actor on stage could imagine he was tiptoeing through a campground at midnight. All of us actors were getting very despondent over the way our production was being received by the public. It's always disheartening to get more snores than laughs, especially when the title page says you're doing a comedy. Our director told us we were just too sophisticated for the audience, but we kept trying to find ways to get them to perk up. And one night, Al Evans, the elderly character actor who played the beggar, did. Al was completely aware of it, but somehow he had ripped his toga up the back. From the front, he looked like a regular Greek beggar in Electra's court, but from behind, whenever he moved, the toga swung open, revealing his skinny legs and baggy white jockey shorts under his costume. Al hit the stage and started one of his long, long monologues on finding a dead hedgehog on the road. The audience started laughing uncontrollably behind him. Al had no idea what was happening. He just thought he had hit comedic gold, and so he turned to the side of the audience that was laughing. Once he turned, that part of the audience stopped. The people behind him started laughing, so Al would turn again. Once again, the side of the house he was addressing stopped laughing, and the ones behind him, looking at his naked behind, started. I watched from the wings in amazement as Al ended up spinning in the middle of the stage, trying to chase the laugh. He never caught it. No one ever does. I have learned that the laugh is a very uncertain, untrustworthy thing. I was directing an actress in New York who had started the run of our new play with rather lovely performance. The part was very funny. She got more than her share of laughs. Then came the kiss of death. She got good reviews. And then the bigger kiss of death. She believed him. So she began to embellish embellishment is an actor's way of chasing the laugh over the course of the next few weeks her performance became bigger and bigger and broader and broader and she added funny walks and funny faces she did what i'm sure she felt were gems of physical comedy but what appeared to the untutored eye as a form of parkinson's disease Soon she was unrecognizable in the character. Her performance became a strange blend of hee-haw and Jurassic Park. I talked to her before the show and said she had to bring the character back to where we started, that she was killing herself by trying to be funny instead of just trying to be real. She looked at me steadily and said, Stephen, you know, I'm the one who's up on stage. I hear the laughs. I know what I'm doing. 
So why don't you just sit back in the audience, let the actors act, and get out of my way? That evening, I sat in the audience and I watched her get tons and tons of laughs with mugging and stomping. Two men in front of me were laughing hysterically. One of them turned to the other one and whispered, See, I told you, it's the worst performance of all time. A note to young actors. A laugh is a cruel mistress. She always wants you, but she never is faithful. Allá en el rancho grande, allá donde viví. Había una rancherita que alegre me decía, que alegre me decía. It seems like a contradiction at first, but those who chase the laugh for a living, the professional comedians, and who do it successfully, don't seem to chase it at all. Believe it or not, I had the good fortune of meeting Bob Hope when I was a student at SMU. Yeah, I still can't believe it. He talked to a group of students on what makes comedy, and he mentioned two things that I remember. The first was that comedy doesn't exist without tension. It's interesting because Freud said the same thing in jokes in their relation to the unconscious. Freud says that the comic builds tension in his audience through a series of devices. Pace, repetition, shock, even insult. Hello, Don Rickles. When the tension is released, we laugh. Bob Hope told us he used lots of tricks to build tension. He said he always tried to keep his pace brisk so the audience could never get ahead of him. And he said his bit of swinging the golf club on stage had the effect psychologically of creating tension, the same as Jack Benny threatening to play his violin or George Burns smoking his cigar. My favorite inside baseball tip was when Bob Hope confided that he always delivered his monologue standing sideways, occasionally playing with the top button of his jacket. On the punchline, he was subtly stopped fidgeting with that button and turned his body frontways to the audience, releasing the tension and getting the laugh. He chuckled and asked if we noticed anyone else who used his technique. We scratched our collective heads and came up with nothing. And he said, Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show. He used it all, including the golf swing. Mr. Hope said another thing that stuck with me. He said he always played his relationship to the audience. He said he always tried to think of the audience as an individual and relate to that personality in the moment. Whether they liked or didn't like a joke, if they missed a punchline, he would treat them as if they were one of his buddies at the country club. That way the audience always feels that he's talking to them personally. Nowadays, for the great proponents of this approach, look no further than Chris Rock or Sarah Silverman, but back in 1970, I was enormously lucky to witness the great Bob Hope live on stage in a play showing how it's done. He performed Roberta, which he starred in way back on Broadway in 1933 as a benefit on that visit. I still remember his entrance to this day. When Bob came on stage... The Dallas audience went nuts, understandably. They started clapping wildly. They stood. They cheered. 
Bob Hope, true to his discussion with us the previous day, took in the personality of the audience. He bowed graciously. We kept clapping. Bob feigned embarrassment. He turned it into braggadocio. And we kept laughing, adjusting to his changes. Then he topped it all off by doing a pre-Michael Jackson moonwalk, walking back off the stage as if somebody ran his entire entrance in reverse. As an audience, we were screaming. Bob poked his head out, smiled, and disappeared behind the curtain. Then just his arm came out and waved for us, encouraging us to continue. We did. Then he walked back out again, feigning modesty and ad-libbing, Wow, I hope they're this good next week in Duncanville. We, we were exhausted from laughing. We sat down. Bob started the show again with, Now, where were we before I so rudely interrupted us? And we were off and running. Bob Hope did not chase the laugh. He brought the laugh to him by accepting the humanity of the audience. The secret wasn't just in his cleverness, but in his uncanny sense of truth in the moment. One of my favorite comedians of all time is the wonderful Jane Lynch. She's played an array of some of the funniest characters in recent years and now has become America's sweetheart, playing the evil Sue Sylvester on Glee. One night, Jane and I had a couple of scenes to do together, and while we were waiting, we started doing what actors always do to fill the time. We told each other stories. Don't ask me why but actors seem to love the oral tradition, especially in between scenes. All that's usually missing is a bonfire and cave paintings. Jane told me about her college days in New York and some of her early disasters. I told her the story of Al Evans and his torn toga. In our conversation, I noticed something I think is central to comedic timing. Jane's attention to detail was amazing. Most people lose track of the events of their lives because they're distracted by how they feel about them. Jane had the ability to recall hilarious as well as hugely traumatic moments as if she were a reporter. We ended up laughing ourselves sick for about 20 minutes before they called us back onto the set to rehearse. On stage, in the scene, Jane comes over to my house, and by my house I mean Sandy Ryerson's house, to try to get me to join forces with her to take over the Glee Club. In the scene, we have a frame of weirdness. I am wearing a red kimono. I show her my collection of Franklin Mint dolls. I have a nervous breakdown. She suspects I'm so creepy I could be an axe murderer and there could be bodies buried under the floorboards. So, what do we rehearse? We rehearse fixing tea. When does the water boil? When do I pour the tea? Do I offer milk and sugar? No goofiness at all, just nuts and bolts of real activity in the scene. It is an aspect of comedy I think most actors overlook. What is the reality of what is happening that gives the scene an underpinning of meaning? Without meaning, comedy cannot exist. It is civilization. It's the mariachi band in the Mexican restaurant. Many actors feel that they're not fulfilling their comedic mission if they play things straight. Remember, in vaudeville, they usually worked in pairs, straight man and the clown, Abbott Costello, Burns Allen. Everybody loves Lou Costello and his antics, but it was Bud Abbott who made it all work because he provided the framework of meaning that the craziness could take place in. 
Leonard Stern, one of the writers on The Honeymooners and the executive producer of Get Smart. And for me, most importantly, Leonard was the inventor of Mad Libs, who made car trips so much more fun. He told me back in the days of vaudeville and burlesque, money was not split equally among these comedy teams. It was usually a 70-30 split with the straight man getting the lion's share. Back then, they understood the importance of carrying the reality of the scene. What caused the rift in Abbott and Costello's relationship and eventually broke the team apart was Costello's insistence on a raise. He wanted a 50-50 split. When Jane and I got into the scene, we started improvising, and I was amazed at how fast Jane was, not with a witty comment or mere cleverness, but like Bob Hope in conveying and commenting on the truth, just noting accurately what was happening in the moment. Jane would say things like, whoa, Sandy, you're getting kind of close there. What's that I smell? Uh, I don't think it's aftershave. Maybe you should keep your knees together if you're going to wear something like that. Careful, I don't want to see too much. Oops, too late. Bernard Hopgood, or Hob as we affectionately called him at SMU or the University of Illinois, once taught that all laughter is laughter of recognition. If we see the truth in a statement, the simple release of the tension of saying what we're thinking is enough to get a laugh. I would argue that's what makes Jane Lynch a great comic actor. It's not her funny bone, which is quite a gift, but the fact that she's a good listener, a keen observer, and a lifelong student of human nature. When people ask me advice on how to become better at comedy, I always suggest become more observant. Write down what you see. In the end, you will be amazed at what you learn about people, what they're like, and how they really react to things. One of the great comedians of our generation is Jerry Seinfeld. Now, I've been a big fan of Jerry's years before his television show was launched, but he is one of the best at what we call observational comedy. He exemplifies Hobbes' declaration that all comedy is comedy of recognition. Jerry rarely tells jokes, but he always makes you laugh. I got to meet and work with Jerry in a very strange way. I was cast in the very unlikely role for me of a mafia tough guy in the movie Calendar Girl. I had a deaf-mute brother in the film, and they told me for the role I would have to learn sign language to translate everything that was going on for my brother. Columbia Studios hired a sign teacher for myself and Kurt Fuller, the man who played my brother, and we had all of six weeks to look like we had spoken sign together all of our lives. Okay, I smell disaster. In my mind, I'm furiously trying to come up with a plan B. What if we can't learn sign language convincingly enough? So I came up with a scheme to cover our asses. And here was the idea. What if Kurt and I just made up signs that we developed when we were kids? It seemed like a feasible idea. So I was going to pitch it to our producer, director, and sign teacher by working up some make-believe signs for one of my speeches in Calendar Girl. Coincidentally, at the same time, Mark Hirschfeld, who was casting director of the new TV show Seinfeld, called me up and said, Stephen, we have a role of the New Age faith healer, purveyor of holistic flimflam, Tor Ekman. Jerry Seinfeld and I were wondering if you could come down and see if you could do something to make it funny. 
I rode my bike down the street to CBS Radford and met with Jerry and Mark. And the three of us sat down in a room, and Jerry smiled and said, So, what do you think? (laughs) What do you think you could do with Tor? In the room, I made a very unlikely decision. I said, Guys, since I'm a fake doctor, what if I spoke using a fake language? Jerry looked at me with a certain amount of bemusement and said, Sounds scary. What do you mean? I said, well, what if I use phony sign language? Jerry grinned and said, and what exactly would that look like? I used the phony sign language I was working on for my speech in Calendar Girl, and I stuck it into the Seinfeld script. Jerry nodded and giggled and said, yeah, that works. And so I got the part. The key point here was I didn't try to do anything funny with my hand signs or with the scene. I just tried to be truthful, be wise, like all the snake oil salesmen always are. I tried to make my hand signs as specific as I could as if they were part of the real world. It was a variation of Freud in which I made the meaningless meaningful. And it worked for the scene. Before the shoot, Jerry said to me that he was surprised that I used the same hand signs every time. I said, well, I'm saying the same thing. It's a language. He said, yeah, that sounds difficult. Usually difficult isn't funny. I said, really? Jerry nodded and said, yeah, try holding three golf balls on your head with a pair of underpants. It's difficult, but I don't know if I'd want to watch it for very long. Our schedule was a point of interest to those of you out there who think acting was easy. On the day of the shoot, we started running through the show at 10 a.m., We shot the show with no audience at 2.30. The audience was seated around 4.30, and Jerry worked his triple shift as producer, as star, and as audience warm-up man. We performed the entire show in front of the live audience twice. They left around 9 o'clock that night. We continued and did the show without an audience two more times and finished at 1.30 a.m. I never worked with a group of people that worked harder than the cast of Seinfeld. The end result of all that effort was a show that looked effortless. It reminds me of a comment made by the great English actor Alfred Lunt that comedy must be effortless. It must be physically clean, otherwise you're dropping your pennies in the mud. Michael Richards' amazingly acrobatic entrances, Julia Louise Dreyfus's fits, Jason Alexander's tirades, all exemplify clean, bold comedic strokes. And none of it would exist without Jerry providing the framework of the world as, believe it or not, the straight man. He was right up there with George Burns as one of the funniest straight men in history. Back on the set of Glee, Jane and I had just finished our first scene. We're sitting back out on the bench at our stage at Paramount. The sun was starting to set, and we started in on another round of stories. Jane told me stories of plays she had been in that went terribly wrong, and I launched into this final story of Al Evans in our occasionally disastrous production of Giroudoux's Electra in 1974. During the run, Al was exhausted from having to remember so many lines, and the play ended with another 10-minute monologue, and the producer asked me if I could reappear and deliver the speech at the end of the play. Al would appreciate it. I said, well, I get killed in Act 1. Won't that confuse the audience? And our director said, no, no, you'll come back as a completely different person. You'll have a different costume and a different name in the program, and we'll paint you orange. 
I said, what? And the director said, yeah, sure. The play is stylized. You could come back as someone who's orange. And I said, well, no one else in the play changes colors. And he said, even better. It will be more dramatic. I agreed to do the part as an orange person just to have more lines. I learned the gigantic final monologue that details the death of Electra and her family. Al was left with nothing to do at the end of the play, but he said he had night blindness and was worried about exiting in the dark during my, my speech. So the director told him not to exit. Just finish the line that introduced me, sit down on a box behind me, and listen to my speech. The play will come to an end, the lights will go out, the lights will come up for the curtain call. Just stand up, take a bow, walk off the stage in the light, no problem. Al said he had one more request. His heart was acting up from all the effort of doing the play. Would it be all right if he had his nitroglycerin tablets on stage? The producer said, of course, not a problem. And we'll give you a jug of grape juice and we'll pretend it's wine and you just take a pill whenever you need one. Please, your health comes first. I came out that night to do Al's final speech. Al was sitting behind me on a box with a flagon of Welch's Concord grape juice by his side. I was orange. I started my speech and predictably the audience thought it was comedic because one, I was dead, it was me, and I was suddenly a different color. I was becoming very frustrated with all of the laughter, and I tried to play the part with even more intensity so they knew I really meant business, and this was the serious part of the play, but they kept laughing. And because the theater was in the round, I occasionally had to turn around and face the audience behind me, and that is when I noticed Al was sitting behind me with his heart pills in a row on his box, and he was playing what looked like baseball with them. I turned back around to the majority of the audience, and now I was furious. Maybe that's why they were laughing. Al was upstaging me by playing with his heart medicine. I bottled up all of my rage, and in a moment of the speech, when I start to talk about an eagle swooping down to grab Electra, I turned and jumped in the air in front of Al and landed with a horrific thud on the platform. The stage shook. Al looked up from his pills in horror. His face went white, his mouth open. He gasped for air. His eyes rolled back in his head, and he slumped back off of his stoop, motionless. I whirled around back, continuing my speech, saying to myself inside my head, Oh, no, I just killed Al. Just killed him dead. I finished my speech. The lights went out. The applause began, and I'm thinking, Come on, Al. Come on, Al. Be all right. Be all right, Al. You'll be all right. The lights came up for the curtain call. Al was still slumped over his box. I couldn't even think. We all bowed. We ran off the stage. I looked back through the curtain. Al was still unconscious on the box. His body was limp. The audience called out to him on the way out. Hey, good show. Good show. Al never moved. They thought it was part of the performance. I ran back to the house phone. I called up to Kimberly, our stage manager in the control booth. I said, Kimberly, Stephen here. I think I just killed Al. Kimberly said, what do you mean? I said, I think I gave him a heart attack when I yelled, look, he's still on stage. Kimberly looked out his window and saw the audience streaming out of the theater with Al still slumped on his box. Kimberly muttered, oh, no. I said, exactly. I ran back to the dressing room. I got everyone's attention, and I broke the news that Al was dead on stage. They stared at me in silence, and then they laughed. I realized because I was still orange and no one believed me. I said, no, listen, I'm not kidding. Al is dead. 
And just then I hear a booming voice behind me saying, Who's dead? It was Al. He came walking to the dressing room behind me, snapped his fingers, and exclaimed grandly, Another one down. He sat down and started taking off his makeup. I said, Al, another one down? He goes, Yes, a life in the theater. You give it your all, you put it out there every night, and then you go home and get ready for tomorrow. Al took off his toga and started putting on his pants. I said, Al, are you all right? I mean, you weren't moving out there. You, you were on stage the whole time. Al looked at me surprised and said, Was I? Must have dozed off during that last speech. Had a bit of a catnap. Back at the Paramount lot, the sun had set, the stars were coming out, and an A.D. came out in the alley and called Jane and myself back onto the set to start the next scene. We stopped laughing. We tried to get serious. We thought about the task at hand, and then thoughts of Al danced in our head, and we started giggling again. Jane mumbled under a laugh, just a little catnap. At the end of the day, comedy may be nothing more than a visitation to the book of dreams, the bedtime stories of all the crashes we walked away from. Comedy is proof we survived the crash, and the laughter is just recognition that it left a mark. Jane and I walked on stage for rehearsal. I said, Allah Al, another one down. Jane snapped her fingers grandly and laughed, Ah, yes, a life in the theater as we headed into another adventure under the watchful eyes of happy spirits from the past. When you're smiling, when you're smiling, the whole world smiles with you. When you're laughing, when you're laughing, the sun comes shining through. But when you're crying, That was Chasing the Laugh, a series of stories by Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, as we like to do each week, uh, we're going to read an email from a listener. This one's apparently a new listener, and he writes, Hi, Stephen. I love your podcast, but I have to admit I only discovered it recently. After thoroughly enjoying your more recent episodes, I had to go back and get the rest of them. Each episode makes me consider emailing you, but having just listened to The Alchemist, I was compelled by a wave of tears, bearing in mind I haven't cried for well over 10 years. <laughs> to thank you from the bottom of my heart for telling these stories which have had a massive impact in healing my troubled relationship with my mother. Thank you so much for allowing me to see and appreciate the things and people in my life for their true value and waking me from my selfish slumber. Kind regards, many thanks, and best wishes for your future endeavors. Uh, well, thank you for writing that email, whoever wrote it. Uh, I, we try not to reveal any personal information. Uh, but yes, The Alchemist, Stephen, in my opinion, one of the best episodes of The Tobolowsky Files, if not the best, episode four. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I got an email the other day saying that their favorite was The X Factor. So, you know, you just don't know. Also I, love, I love it episode. too, man. I also love a fantastic too. episode. But yeah, uh, also interesting to know that you are able to... Uh, make people cry even though they haven't done so in 10 years. I think that's 
That's exactly how I would describe that phenomenon. <laughs> yeah, there was a little crying last night with the dry heaving vomit, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, Stephen, we also have another thing I, I think we should mention, uh, and that is that uh, one of the subjects of one of the episodes has, has passed away recently. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, I, I tweeted this. This is, this is hard. Uh, but Abe, my dear friend Abe, who uh, was the source and the story of uh, Good Day at Auschwitz, passed away two days ago. And tomorrow's his funeral, and the rabbi wanted me to speak at his funeral, if not read A Good Day at Auschwitz. I'm writing something new uh, for tomorrow. But um, for all of you who wished me well, on Facebook and on Twitter. Thank you so much. Uh, Abe was a man who touched many, many lives and even through that story touched many lives. And he will be missed terribly by all of us. Yeah. Episode 34, uh, A Good Day at Auschwitz. Very powerful stuff. Um, and I, I'm sad I'd never had the chance to know him, but it sounds like he, uh, he made an impact on the lives of those around him. Definitely. Um, Stephen, you mentioned Twitter and Facebook. Can you tell people how they can get in touch with you in those ways? That's a great idea. You can reach me at uh, stephentobolowski at gmail.com. And that's S-T-E-P-H-E-N. T as in Tom, O, B as in boy, O, L, O, W, S, K, Y at gmail.com. Now when people meet me on the street, David, they imitate this thing to me. S-T-E-P. Anyway, you can also get me at twitter.com slash Tobolowsky or facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowsky. Yes, indeed. We have a growing collection of fans uh, on the Stephen Tobolowsky Facebook page. And yes. uh, Stephen and his wife Anne read all those, those comments that you guys post there. So thanks so much for, for joining us there. Um, you can also email me if you'd like at slash filmcast at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen S-K-Y. And you can find the other podcasts I do at slash filmcast.com. A couple of other announcements before we go today. Uh, the first one is that if you'd like more Stephen Topolowski stories instantly, right now, well, actually not quite right now, but, <laughs> but if you'd like instant right gratification for them, you will be able to get them soon, which I guess defeats the, the purpose of instant gratification. Uh, but Stephen, what's going on with Stephen Topolowski's birthday party, the film that inspired this podcast? Yeah, we were blown away by this, but uh, iTunes... Uh, requested that we digitize birthday party and put it to where you just go to documentaries i believe it is and it's being downloaded as we speak now so any day now it's going to be up there it's going to be the film itself to where you just push one button you can watch the film instantly if if you still want a signed copy of the film if you want to see the film and the hour and a half of outtakes and extras still go to stbpmovie.com but if you just want to see the movie tonight, tomorrow, when it's a rainy day, you download it off of iTunes. I also want to say one other thing, which is that The Tobolowsky Files uh, is on Seattle NPR. And <sighs> it aired on Seattle NPR this last week uh, on Monday, July 19th. And it's going to air again on Monday, July 26th. So we encourage you, if you're in Seattle... To tune in, I think it's at 8 p.m. on both of those nights. And if things go well, 
then it might begin airing on Seattle NPR even more frequently. So we'll see what happens. But uh, a big thanks to Seattle NPR for taking a chance on airing a podcast. And uh, we really hope everyone up there in Seattle enjoys the Tobolowsky Files. Of course, you can always find every episode of the Tobolowsky Files at tobolowskyfiles.com. And I think that's going to wrap things up for this week's episode. Tune in next week uh, for another story. Thank you guys for listening and have a great week. Adios. Adios.